sees the little cup with the little styrofoam unleavened bread. And she goes, I want the real thing. Have you all heard that the uh, Israeli coalition whip uh, resigned? And so Israel's government under uh, Naftali Bennett is potentially collapsing. They're going to be thrown back into elections again in Israel. And the reason absolutely fascinates me. Israel's health minister instructs hospitals to allow patients to eat leavened bread on Passover. And that's the issue. And so, uh, Idit Silman invokes Jewish observance and resigned from the government. And that was one person too many to resign. And so, it's thrown everything into disarray, all about unleavened versus leavened bread. That's just fascinating to me. I don't know if it is to you, but I, Lori, with the bread thing, and the, I just put two and two together and came out with about seven and a half. So, that was free. I'm going to make anybody pay for that tonight. Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. You know, some of these things I might share, and you might go, what's the deal with that? Well, I don't know, ask me afterwards. I just find it interesting. John chapter 10, this, I, I, I told Corey as we were coming over here tonight, he asked me, he goes, so dad, it's going to be a good study? <laughs> I'm like, no, son, this one's going to bore the snot out of you. <laughs> the answer is, it's always a good study, having very little to do with me, um, John chapter 10, what I told him, I'll tell you, this to me is one of the most significant, if not the most significant chapters in the Gospels. From, from where I'm sitting and from what I read and from what we learn from Jesus, and it is all red letters, well, primarily almost all red letters, Jesus' teaching, but what he shares here is absolutely huge to our faith, to our peace, to direction, less mentioned in this life, the kingdom or to the kingdom, but it's, it's right now. And this, what Jesus says here is massive. So you, you picked a really good night to be here and to open up this gospel. So we'll be in chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 says, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And tonight, what we're going to talk about is the God shepherd. Not the good shepherd. We'll talk about that on Sunday. And, and he's actually one and the same. But I, I want you to take this different title, a different thought. The God shepherd. That's what makes this chapter so significant. It is all the words of the God shepherd. As he makes unequivocal here, absolutely clear, there's no two ways around what Jesus is about to declare here in John chapter 10. But first, we got to have some context. The used to be born, man born blind. Used to be blind man had just seen Jesus. Remember Sunday morning, we talked about that, John chapter 9. He had just seen Jesus. He had just literally fallen down on his face and worshiped Jesus 
an act of blasphemy unless the one he's worshiping is God. And Jesus, for him to receive that worship would be blasphemous unless, in fact, he himself was God. And that had just taken place. This once blind man sees Jesus. He sees with eyes of faith. He worships him. But the studied teachers and the leaders of Israel who claimed not to be blind were absolutely blind to who he was, to who he is. Look at chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus explains that the light of the world, which comes to, for the purpose of enlightening every person, will enlighten some, it will blind others. For some, the brightness brings clarity. For others, the brightness is blinding. And it really depends on the condition of the heart when you look at Jesus. But the question we start with tonight is, to what were they blind? What was it about Jesus that they were blinded to or blinded by? And Father, I just ask you to give us this revelation tonight. A revelation in our faith of, of who you really are and why it's so significant, why it's so important to us right now here today. And I pray that what we see here will bring us great peace. Holy Spirit, we wait on you. We wait for you to hear you teach in Jesus' name, amen. To what were they blind? It was not his claim to be Messiah. I'm underscoring something that we already spilled into a bit on Sunday. It's not about Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christos, I'm the Mashiach. That's, that was not the issue for the Jewish people. That would not have, have ignited cries for crucifixion. And, and I can prove that to you. But first, I want to tell you about something you need to watch on YouTube. If you have a chance, if you haven't seen this, check out Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. It's a conversation with Dennis Prager, probably the most well-known uh, living Jew today, at least in American culture, Dennis Prager, radio personality, brilliant guy, Prager University. He, he's amazing, and I'm, I, I really like Dennis Prager. And Jack Hibbs, pastor of Calvary Chino Hills, and there's a, a, another pastor who is basically interviewing the two of them at, at his church, and it's a conversation between a, an Orthodox Jew, or a practicing Jew, and, and a pastor. And the conversation is very interesting, but Dennis Prager, in the midst of it, they bring up the question about Messiah. Dennis Prager says, well, I, I assumed you were probably gonna ask that at some point tonight. And he says, Jews don't disqualify people from being Jewish on the basis of their belief on who's the Messiah. You could believe anyone was the Messiah. That would not disqualify you as a Jew. That would not get you <laughs> aposynagogos, unsynagogued. That wouldn't get you kicked out. So watch that. Ask a Jew, ask a Gentile, because the conversation's fascinating, but that's one of the things that the Prager said. Jews don't disqualify people on the basis of their belief on who's the Messiah. 
And in that discussion, Prager acknowledged that Jews have followed many would-be Messiah types down through the ages. Now, in the church among Christians, if we went running after someone saying, this is the Messiah, and, and they were proven false, that'd be an issue. Apparently not among the Jews. It would just be, oh, perhaps he wasn't Messiah, and off they would go. Their view of Messiah, I'm talking modern Judaism, the view of Messiah is very different than the Christian view because their view of Messiah is basically as a deliverer who's gonna fix the world, who's gonna make things, this messed up world, a little bit better. That's as far as it goes. A deliverer. I'm getting ahead of myself. Listen to this. Acts chapter five. Acts chapter five tells us that a Pharisee named Gamaliel, verse 34, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council, this is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time, and and that's Peter and John. Put them outside. Because they had told Peter and John to stop talking in the name of Jesus, they were still talking in the name of Jesus, and so they had a council meeting about this, and he said, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, he says, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, Gamaliel says, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now that's a good, that's a Dennis Prager. Gamaliel was the Dennis Prager of the first century. And that is a good Prager perspective. Hey, This could be of God, maybe it's not, but don't fight against it. If it's not, it'll fall apart. If it is of God, then you'll be found to be fighting against God because these guys are proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. They took his advice after calling the apostles in. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. I love what Peter and the guys do. They went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to to suffer shame for his name And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Stop speaking in that name, but they couldn't help it. But the point is this. Two right there are named even in the Bible, would-be messiahs that several Jews followed after, but it came to nothing. And those Jewish people would not have been unsynagogued because they thought, Judas the Galilean was a messiah, or Theudas was the messiah, or perhaps... Back before that, around 164 B.C., Judas Maccabee. Judas Maccabee, the word Maccabee is actually a nickname. It wasn't his last name. His father was Mattathias. Judas raised up against Antiochus Epiphanes. There's a whole story there. And many thought he was Messiah. He was a Messiah figure. Maccabee, by the way, means the hammer. I like that. That's a Larissa name right there, the hammer. Bring that, drop the hammer. And so Judas Maccabee was thought of by many to be, could he be Messiah? Because he rescued, he delivered Israel at that time. Shimon bar Kokhba in 135 AD, another deliverer of Israel, or so they thought until he was put down and all of the land was lost 
against the emperor Hadrian. He was thought to be a Messiah, didn't amount to anything. Moses of Crete in the fifth century. I'll just give you some names. These were people who were thought to be Messiah in the Jewish community. In the eighth century, Abu Isa was one. Al-Ra'i, another serene was a third person in that century thought to be Messiah. If you track it through every century since Christ and even before, there have been Messiah figures in Judaism. Received by some and then rejected as, well, maybe that wasn't the best one to follow. In the 12th century, there was Moses al-Dari and David al-Rui. And he came to (laughs) al-Ruin. Nothing left to him. Check this out. In 1666 A.D., Nearly half, get this, half of all Jews believed a Turkish Jew named Shabzai Zvi was Messiah. That's a huge following that this man had. Came to nothing. In the 18th century, Jacob Joseph Frank claimed that he was the messianic incarnation of David and had many followers. And then his daughter, Eve Frank, was declared to be the incarnation of the Shekinah glory of God. I don't know how that works. They said she was the female aspect of God. The most recent Messiah figure, and I don't know if if those of you who traveled recently with us to Israel noticed this, but there were uh, signboards on the side of the roads. uh, There's a poster that's, that's plastered still to this day around Jerusalem especially, with an old man's face on it, the Chabad Jews follow after Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who lived 1902, he died in 1994, and they're still waiting for his resurrection. 94. Messiah only took three days. But these are, these are all these different names I'm giving you are showing you. Messiah... If, if it's the right Messiah and you follow him, great. If he's wrong and you figure that out later, no big deal because Messiah from Jewish faith is just a man. He's just an anointed man. And therefore, we'll follow him until we see what happens. And it's not really that big a deal. And Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse five, many will come in my name saying, I am the Mashiach and will mislead many. He said in Matthew 24, 23, therefore, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect or the chosen, speaking of Israel. And Jesus said, behold, I told you in advance, I'm giving you fair warning out ahead of time that this is gonna happen. And so Jesus said that in the first century, and I've just given you example after example after example of false Mashiachs, false messiahs. Dennis Prager said this in, in this discussion, and you can watch this on YouTube, the divining line between Judaism and Christianity theologically is not with regard to whether Jesus was Messiah, it's whether Jesus was God. And we talked about this Sunday morning, but again, coming back to this, that's the same thing our friend Moshe at Shorashim Bookshop in, in the old city of Jerusalem, that's exactly what he said. The distinction between modern Judaism and Christianity today is that Jesus to the modern Jew it was, was simply a, a great teacher. Simply, and and they, there's respect there, actually, among many. But no way, God. 
Messiah would only be an anointed man, not God. And that's the divining line. But I wonder in the church, how many Christians really believe Jesus is God? Do you? Because there are an awful lot of Christians that don't even know, that are unsure on that one. If you ask the question, they waffle on it. Son of God. Second member of the Trinity. Third member would be the Holy Spirit. Kind of like I said today, a, a, a second cousin down the line. You know, Father, Son, second cousin, the Holy Spirit. Viewed as a totem pole, which would be pagan anyway. Father, Son, Spirit. And, and that's not the way the Bible describes our triune God, who is one, monotheism, but he's three. And so Jesus presents himself as God. But, but before we even get to what Jesus says, Messiah as deliverer or Messiah as divine? That question has not changed for 2,000 years in, in Judaism. That was the question that was the big issue when Jesus came. It continues to be the issue that divides out Judaism from Christianity today. What do the Hebrew prophets say? I'll give you a bunch tonight as we go, but let's start with Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name, what? Which means? Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. That's pretty clear. So one is coming who will somehow be born of a virgin who's called Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's descriptive of Messiah. That is a, a messianic prophecy. There are many, many others that, again, I'll, I'll hit a few tonight as we go, this one is one of my absolute favorites because it is so straight to the point. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse five. Jeremiah 23, verse five, and just jot this down for reference. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness is this guy's name. Now, if you just leave that as kind of a cursory English translation and don't change it much, you could say, well, the Lord, you know, sir, so he's gonna be a righteous dude. He'll be called a righteous guy. Okay, well, that, that's great. So, so that could just be a man who's anointed, who's a righteous guy like a Moses figure who is gonna rise up and be the Messiah. But the prophecy doesn't leave that option because the name by which he will be called is Yahweh Sidkenu. Yahweh, our righteousness. This branch, this one who rises up, this Messiah is called Yahweh righteousness. That's amazing. That's obvious. That's God, the God shepherd. So, so we go to John chapter 10, remembering what has just taken place. Jesus has just, he's just found 
the man born blind who he healed, who was just kicked out, and he's brought him in. And that's where we begin. And the same people are now, that blind man, he's here in this conversation, John chapter 10. John chapter 9 comes before chapter 10. You got that? So he's there. The Pharisees who are opposed to Jesus and, and having a problem with this healing on Shabbat, they're there. And Jesus begins to teach, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers or the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Oh, oh they would have understood the picture. They would have understood culturally what he was describing because it was very common. I told you before, John didn't record any parables of Jesus. Okay, I was wrong. Sometimes I do that just to make sure you know I'm not the one who's always right. This is a parable. There may be one other in the Gospel of John. They just don't present his parables because they come so quickly and go right on into teaching, but this is a parable. Jesus has just painted a picture. A parable is a known truth that is thrown alongside an unknown truth. Parable means to throw alongside. So you have this known truth that he presents, but it's to express something that they're not knowing, something that they're missing. And that's what he's doing here. By the way, the one other parable is a single verse in John chapter 12, verse 24, which is, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's a one-verse parable, and we'll come to that in John chapter 12. But this parable, these opening six verses of John chapter 10, is drawing upon a known truth of shepherding in the day. This, Jesus is saying something that they go, well, yeah, why are you talking about that? We all know that. Again, it's following on the heels of John chapter 9, so don't miss that. It's following, the stun it's, it's following what's just happening, and what Jesus says here in this obvious truth is the less obvious but stunning denunciation of the bad shepherds of Israel. How do you know? Listen, a thief. He says, he who uh, climbs up another way is a thief and a robber. A thief and a robber. He uses two words right at the beginning of this, talking about a fold of sheep and one who comes in there, not through the door, but climbs over to try and steal the sheep. This is a thief or a robber. The word thief is kleptes, where we get klepto. So you can remember that. Klepto comes right out of the Greek, kleptes. And it literally means someone who steals stealthily. So it's a thief who sneaks in after dark and, and whisks away. But a robber is a lestes, a less days, which I checked, and it's not Les's full name, so we're okay there. <laughs> a kleptase and a less days. Stealthy stealing is the kleptase, the klepto. A less days is brazen burglary. This would be in-home invasion in the middle of the day. That's a, that's a less days. Someone who, who comes in, and they don't, they don't care. They don't care if they're seen. They don't care if they're, they're just They're there to 
steal brazenly and brutally, and both describe the devil. Both describe the extremes in which Satan tends to work. Sometimes he's beguiling like a kleptase. He's stealthy in that he's luring and trying to deceive. Other times, he is just brazen. He's, he's just a brutal thug. And he comes in hard and fast, kleptase, lestase, they're both. And false shepherds are agents of the evil one. So the false shepherds, that's how they're going to function. It's going to be one way or the other. Either they're going to be stealthy and try and work their way in, or they're going to be just brutal and come bashing headlong into the situation. Agents of the enemy, bad false shepherds, thieves work in the shadows, right? They climb in the windows. They try to gain the confidence of the sheep. They're the ones who slide into the church, and they just begin little lies, little deceptions, little little issues. That's the kleptase. That's Jude, verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the thief, the kleptase. But then there's the robber, the lestase, again, brutal, br- brutish and, and brutal, these are the ones who, uh, well, the kleptase, they'll try to pull the wool over your eyes. Thank you. They're the ones who are trying to fleece the flock. Okay. The less days are a little more obvious. They will string up the sheep and put a lamb on a spit. Okay, that's, that's what they're going to do. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, that's who Paul's describing when he says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples away after them. So you see two kinds of agents of the enemy. One who's very subtle. The other is very stark. One is not so obvious. You know what tends to happen with the devil? What, what, what I've seen just in my lifetime is he tends to start a kleptase. And when that doesn't work and he gets frustrated, he becomes a lestase. He becomes brutal and obvious. And both we see in chapter nine. Both attitudes among the false shepherds, those who begin to seek information and drill for information, and then they just get angrier and angrier and, and angrier until finally they say to the blind man back in verse 34 of chapter nine, you were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us? And they put him out. So they went from kleptase to lestase. These are the false shepherds, thieves and robbers who don't use the door. Now, now stay with me on this because Jesus specifically mentions a door and that is so important because he's gonna talk about two different kinds of doors here in the opening verses of chapter 10. Two different doors. And the very first door is a door that, well, it's really two doors of two different kinds of folds. Coming back to the, Middle East of the first century. Two folds, two different kinds of doors. The first one, and what he's talking about in the first six verses, I believe, is the village fold. The village fold, like what you would have back in Bethlehem. Either either high-walled enclosures, built structures, or caves. Oftentimes, they were caves, which had doors affixed to the outside of the caves. And what would happen The village fold would have an actual fence door or or gate to the fold. 
the village fold was a communal enclosure. So the shepherd would come in with one shepherd with his sheep, another shepherd with his sheep, another shepherd with his sheep. They'd all come to the same village fold at the end of the day or at the end of the season, coming in perhaps as the winter is coming on. And all of those flocks communally would share that fold. Multiple flocks, one fold, big fold. And the shepherds would lead their flocks in one at a time. They they would pass their flocks under the shepherd's rod, checking them as as they went in, inspecting them. You might say, well, how, how did the folds, how did they distinguish between the folds? The shepherd's voice. Because the sheep knew the voice of the shepherd. You know, if I had a dog right now, that's another discussion for another time. You all know we had one, we don't now, but that's, I'm not gonna get into that. (laughs) (laughs) She's doing great, let's just leave it at that. But your dog, if you've had a dog any amount of time, knows your voice, right? Go try to call someone else's dog. You know, at best, they're gonna give you one of these. And that's with the sheep. They learned their shepherd's voice. So so the shepherd would call his sheep and they would all come, his flock. And they would go in and he would inspect them as they go in, make sure no one's hurt, no one's bleeding, there are no problems, no one's sick. And they go all, all go in. And all of the flocks come into the same fold and there they stay for night. And when they're all pinned up, the shepherds go home for the night and a watchman or a doorkeeper will stand guard at the door of the village fold all night long until the next morning when the shepherds will take them out. And this, again, is primarily in the winter months when you're not gonna be out at pasture for long periods of time. You're you're gonna wanna bring them back into a warmer place at the end of the day. End of the day they come in, same thing. The doorkeeper stood guard through the night. And there was no coming and going. Okay, note that. This is the difference between a door and and a, a fold he's gonna talk about in a minute. But they just came in and stayed. And then they were let out in the morning when the shepherd came, which is why he says, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep, a shepherd. The shepherd's gonna be there and he goes through the door. He doesn't climb over the wall to get his sheep. He comes in by the door. The doorkeeper opens to him and the sheep hear his voice again, Jesus says, and he calls his own sheep by name and out they go because they know their shepherd. That's the village fold. It's apparent in verses one through six, again, to me, that, that Jesus is talking about that particular fold, but then, then he says something else, verse seven. So Jesus was saying to them, first he says the first part, and they don't understand, why are you telling us this? So Jesus goes, okay. He said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am statement number three. Note that, in your Bibles. There are seven I am statements as we referenced before in the Gospel of John. This is number three. I am the door. I'm the door. I'm the door of the sheep. But the word here for door, tura, T-H-U-R-A-H, if you're writing that out, thura is door, gate, vestibule, or entry. I am the gate. Some of your Bibles will translate. I am the door. I'm the entry, Jesus says. It is the third I am statement of Jesus, and now he's talking about in the country. All right, the village fold and the pasture fold or the country fold is the second fold. And in the country, it's different. Maybe you've heard this before, but the shepherd would find himself a good three-walled enclosure perhaps some rocks that are, are simply formed that way. Or, or he would build up brambles in three walls and then the shepherd himself would be the gate. 
At night, he'd call his sheep in, he'd lead them in, and then he would lie down at the opening. He would guard them against a wolf trying to get in, and he would guard against his sheep wandering out and getting lost in the middle of the night. That is the shepherd himself, and Jesus says, that's me. That's me. So you can understand how Jesus can both be, I am statement number three, the door, and what we're gonna see in a minute, the good shepherd, because the shepherd is the door. He is the door, and I believe absolutely now he's talking about out in the country, out in the pasture land. When they're out away from the villages, the good shepherd's the door. And and, and note that, well, he's gonna say more about this. Read it in verse eight. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, he says a second time. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. See the difference? The other door with the doorkeeper, they go in at night and they stay. And then the shepherd comes back to get them and lets them out and off they go. With this shepherd, you come in and out. You go through him, you come through him, going in, coming out either way. You come in and out, you find pasture. You go through this shepherd. So let me, let me give more clarity on this. The village sheepfold, the village sheepfold, It's a parable for the custody of of Judaism. Now listen to me on this. The village sheepfold, you come in and you're held. You're under custody of the doorkeeper. You, You stay there. Galatians chapter three, verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Listen, the word tutor, pedagogos, where we get the word pedagogue, it actually means guardian. The law became our guardian, like the doorkeeper, standing there, holding, holding people in, being you know, the custodian of Israel. He has become our guardian. The law has become our guardian to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. There's a new freedom now in Jesus. A freedom by which the sheep cannot depart when the doorkeeper's there and the gate is closed overnight. The custody of the law. You gotta stay with this. But then Jesus comes along and he is the door and we go in and out and find pasture through Jesus Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Jesus himself entered by the door of Judaism. So in the first one, the door isn't speaking of Jesus, but he was the shepherd who entered through the door to call out his own sheep, Israel, to call out the Jewish people. He came by the door of Judaism. He came born a Jew. He fulfilled 330 precise Hebrew prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures and fulfilled them by himself being a very Jewish Jesus. Galatians chapter four, verse four, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. So we could say the custody of the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So you move from the village sheepfold out to the pastoral sheepfold, which now speaks not of the custody of Judaism, but of the custody of Christ. And we're under that custody. Are you with me on this? 
Okay, so village, and now we have the pastoral sheepfold, the country sheepfold. We're out in the country with Jesus. What's that mean? That's the church age. That's where we've been for the last 2,000 years. We are in the church age, the, the age of grace. We come and we go under the protective and watchful care of the good shepherd. And by the way, this tracks really well with Hebrew theology of the shepherd and of Messiah. In fact, if you read through Psalm 22, 23, and 24, those three psalms are a very interesting picture because 22 gives us the suffering Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. They pierced my hands, Psalm 22. Psalm 23 is the 23rd Psalm. Following the suffering of Jesus, we now are in pasture with the good shepherd. Psalm 24 is the coming king, the chief shepherd, in his return. And I will leave it to you to read those three psalms. I would read them back to back and check that out. The dying shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. And it's all Jesus. But what a beautiful picture. And, and I, I'm pointing this out partially because when, when Jesus says, I am the door, some have said, oh, well, well then he's talking about the kingdom or he's talking about heaven. I believe he's talking about right now. He's our door right now. We come and go through Jesus right now. We find pasture in Jesus right now. We are in Psalm 23 right now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? So that's where we are in the pastoral sheepfold with the good shepherd, under the protective and watchful care of the good shepherd. Now, why is chapter nine significant to chapter 10? Because in John's gospel, every major event is followed by serious teaching. There's an event and there's teaching. In this case, the event is the healing of the man born blind, kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of the fold, if you will, of Israel. But what happened? Back in verse 35 of chapter nine, Jesus heard they put him out and finding him said, do you believe in the son of man? And he said, I, you know, who is he? And Jesus revealed himself, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus brought him into his fold. And now Jesus is describing, I think, that very thing, kicked out of the fold by the bad shepherds, but found by the good shepherd, and now he's come under Messiah's watchful care by faith. Jesus is the door. Notice, by the way, he says, I am the door of the sheep, not a door. It's not one of many. It's not one of 12 doors, as in perhaps 12 tribes might have had 12 doors. One door. One door, I am the door of the sheep. And the only way to find pasture, that is good feeding and rest and a place to run and breathe the air and have freedom along with eternal security is to come and go through Jesus. And then he says, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is one of the power verses of the entire Bible. And you all have heard it probably many times. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You know what? This thief does the opposite. He just wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all his aim is. That's his complete and entire goal. He is not going to benefit you in any way whatsoever in your life. He just wants to mess you up. That is Satan's plan. Every lure of temptation to sin is a lure to destruction and death. That's all it is. 
It's not, well, it was for the other 15 billion people who have gone through that, you know, in history, but for me, I'll be okay. No, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. What life is he talking about? Eternal life. But listen, starting right now, and again, it's really interesting to me that you, you said that, Les, because that's, that's the deal. This is past your life. This is eternal life that is right now, here, today. We talk a lot about the kingdom. We talk about the rapture of the church and the coming of Christ, and I get amped up and pumped up when I share these things, and I love talking about, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. I love going round and round about these things and sharing it. I'm so excited for the coming kingdom, but let me explain that the coming kingdom gives purpose and meaning to my life right now. It makes life now worth living. It affects my decisions, Cheryl and I, because we know where we're going. We know what we need to do right now. And our abundant life as promised by Jesus is not out there in the sweet by and by. It's in the sweet right here. Life is good in Jesus, not good in terms of health, wealth, and success. Good in terms of eternally good, substantive, rich, and full, what it's supposed to be, abundant. Now, Prager said this in, in, in this video. I, I might as well just tell you the whole thing. You don't even have to watch it. <laughs> Dennis Prager said, Jews don't have as worked out, as Christians do, the issue of what Messiah is or will be or who it will be. See, we thought a lot about this because it's everything to us as followers of Jesus. Who he is, we better know who he is. But Prager said, we pray for the Messiah. It's one of the 13 principles of the Jewish faith. But, but he says, and he interrupts himself and says, but, but I went to yeshiva, Jewish school. I went to yeshiva for 12 years, nine to five Half in Hebrew, half the day was in Hebrew, half the day was in English. He said it was rigorous. He said this, in all of 12 years, Messiah probably was not discussed more than 10 minutes. Is that surprising to you? That shocked me. I'm like, are you kidding me? 12 years in Jewish school and you got 10 minutes on Messiah? Of course, then it made sense to me because that's how some churches deal with the book of Revelation. You're not gonna deal with who he is? The most substantive, important figure in the Hebrew scriptures is Messiah. 10 minutes. Why? Because modern, and I'm talking modern Jewish life, which in many ways has, has diverged substantially from first century Jewish life. But modern Jewish life is not focused on who Messiah is. Modern Jewish life is focused on what you're supposed to do. Dennis Prager even said, my life purpose is to find the good and do it. To do the good. And I'm like, well, that, I, that's great. I mean, I admire that, and I really do. Understand me, I have deep admiration for Dennis Prager. But his life purpose is to find the good and to do the good. I remember Jesus saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. There's only one who's good. So if you want to find the good, you need to be looking for Jesus, right? Life is found 
and enjoyed in him. Even more than that, he finds you and brings you to life, just like he did with the blind man. I love that John tells us that. Hurting that they put him out and finding him. Jesus went looking for him. Jesus went looking for you or you would not be here tonight. He found you. That should tell you something about his deep, deep love for you. He found you. Found me too. Found me first. But you know, it brings such a point to that verse. I quote over and over and over. Hang on, I'm about to do it again. John 5, 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's the yeshiva that Dennis Prager went to. You search the scripture because you think that in them you have life. This is where life is. So we're gonna search the Bible and we're gonna use the Bible as a manual of good living. Hey, it is a manual of good living, but if that's all you take it as, you will still miss life. The real life is life in Christ because Jesus says it's these that testify about me. This whole thing's about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And here again in verse 10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. By the way, the the Greek translation of the word abundantly, you're gonna love this. Write this down. It means abundantly. (laughs) There's no better translation for it. This is the abundant life, the overflowing life, the rich life, the good life. This is the life, I'll tell you, I I have it. And it's not because of me. I have it. There are times our house is completely nuts. And I sit around and I look at all these Africans running around my house. (laughs) And I say, Jesus, I cannot imagine life without them. And I'll tell you the truth, I never would have done it if not for Cheryl. And Jesus. But it's abundant life. It's not a life, honestly, not a life I would have chosen, but it's a life that he chose to give us. And I do. I sit back, Sharon, I just laugh, and we marvel, and we look at these kids and go, wow. This is not something that we would have picked for ourselves. But he did it. And I'm not saying go to Africa and get kids. That's not my point. But That's part of what what has become abundant in in our lives. And that's what the good shepherd wants to do. But, But listen, get this. Truly good life depends not on what you do, but on who he is. And it depends on how much you're willing to trust him for who he is. To trust Jesus as your God. As I trust him, security and peace and comfort and feeding, all that he provides in the pasture, the abundant pasture life is mine now, but it is established and secured by then. I have it now, but this eternal life is secure forever. Which is why Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So we're in the entrance. If my life is that good right now, we're just in the entrance of the eternal life. And to that life, that abundant life now and then, Jesus says very clearly, I am the door. You go through me. You come in, you go out through me every day. Now, let me ask you a a very serious question. Can you honestly say, my life is abundant? 
Now think about it for a minute. My life is abundant. And again, I'm not talking about materially or health, wealth, success. I'm not talking about those things. I'm not talking about how big your portfolio is. Can you say, my life is just, it's abundant. The word abundant, literally, it's parisos. And parisos means beyond measure. You can't even measure the life that Jesus has for you, for me. It is exceedingly more than dull, mundane existence. Now, if you're sitting here tonight going, huh, is my life abundant? No, I don't, boy, what do I have to do to get that abundant life? Listen very carefully. It has absolutely, you are not the issue. It's not about you. You will not discover, generate, or create the abundant life for yourself. You can work your fingers to the bone, but you will not get there. The abundant life is supplied by him. And if you are one who says, my life seems somewhat mundane, and by the way, I've been there. I even, even now, I have days where I, I forget about how blessed I am, and I find myself in the mundane of day-to-day existence, And it's in those moments I remember, wait, no. He supplies the abundant life. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Ephesians 3, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. Abundantly beyond what you can ask or think. You know what that means? That means the best thing you can come up with when you offer it to him and say, you know, Lord, I think if you gave me this, I would have the abundant life. I think his reaction would be, (laughs) that all? Really? You want to limit yourself to that? I'm like, Lord, I've just come up with the great grand scheme and plan of my entire life. And he goes, well, it's okay. It's all right. How would you like abundance? And if you feel tonight like you are lacking that kind of life, that kind of abundant life, again, all kidding aside, don't go to Africa. Don't don't join a world mission. Don't roll up your sleeves and figure out how hard you can work to make it happen. You turn to Jesus, who is the supplier of the abundant life. You talk to him about it. Jesus, I see in the scriptures that you came that I might have life and have it abundantly, so I'm at your disposal. Now, I'll warn you, if you pray that prayer, it may not look like what you think it's gonna look like. But he will not let you down. Remember what he said back in chapter seven? Is it chapter seven or chapter eight? Chapter seven, yeah. Rivers of living water. I think that's how he described his spirit. Rivers of living water, torrents of living water. And we we said at that time, is your walk with the spirit like torrents of living water? It's more like a trickle. And the issue is not what you can do, it's who you believe. It's faith in Jesus. And if, if you have that abundant life, praise the Lord. If you don't have that abundant life, then turn your eyes and your ears to the God shepherd. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am statement number four. So he packs in two in this one teaching. I am the good shepherd. What has he said so far? Now listen to this, this is, this is significant. He has already said, 
I am the bread of life, John 6, 35, which implies right now, right now I'll feed you. I'm the bread of life now and eternally. He says, I'm the light of the world. Obviously, he's talking about light right now and then eternally. John chapter eight, verse 12. John chapter 10, verse seven, he just said, I am the door of the sheep. We come and we go and we have pasture through him, by him, under his guardianship, his watchful care. And now he says, I am the good shepherd. And these are all promises that start right now. Part of your life today, as well as on into the kingdom and eternity. In this age right now, safeguarded by the good shepherd, looking forward to our life to come, but living it with him Right now, he doesn't want to make you just wait. It's funny, because when Les said at communion, you know, about this is talking about life right now. And you said something to the effect of, I, I, I know we talk about the kingdom, we're excited about the kingdom, but this is life right now. And I, and I, I chuckled to myself, because I, I thought, you know, I'm not sitting here going, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom, you know? I'm not walking in despair in life right now because, oh, the kingdom's not here. When's the kingdom going to get here? Then check your hearts. Check yourselves, brothers and sisters. Do not walk in misery right now thinking, well, if we just hold on for a few more weeks, we'll get there. <laughs> You're missing the abundance which he has for you today, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, and the good shepherd. This is life right now. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am, he repeats, the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Hey, we are that other fold. We are the other sheep. I get really excited about this. Anytime Jesus says something that specifically has my name on it, he, he might as well have said, I also have Rick. He's not in this fold, but I'm gonna go get him. I have the bridge, fellowship. They're not of this fold, but I'm gonna go get them. I have the church. The church is the other fold. And I'm gonna go get them. They'll hear my voice. I love this. They will become one flock with one shepherd. That is Jew and Gentile, Jews and the church alike. Because the time is coming when not only individual Jewish people are finding Messiah, and this is happening, finding the truth about their own Messiah who came first to the Jew and then to the Greek, but not only Jewish people who know him now, but Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation is going to hit a point where they see Jesus for who he is, finally. It's going to take some Old Testament-style wrangling. But they're going to see their shepherd. And Jews and Gentiles alike are going to become one flock with one shepherd. And how does he unite us as one flock? By laying down his life. Verse 17. By the way, we're going to go back and look at verses 11 through 16 on Sunday morning, much more in depth. I didn't have time to do it tonight. We'll look at the good shepherd, but we got to stick back, go back, get back to the God shepherd. 
verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. But no one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Did you notice? He says, I lay it down five times, which is the number of grace. I lay it down. I lay down my life. I lay it down, I pick it up, I lay it down. It's my call, it's my authority, it's my right. I lay down my life. Jesus' death was an act of pure, unconditional grace, completely in his own control. He managed the whole thing. You're gonna see that, I've said a few times, you're gonna see it more and more as we get closer to the end of the Gospel of John. You will see a Jesus who is in complete control in the Garden of Gethsemane who is in complete control even as he is being nailed to the cross and speaking from the cross, he controlled even the moment of his dying. I have the authority to do this, to lay down my life. Jesus makes it so clear it's his call, it's his right to lay it down and, note this, to take it back up again and you can't do that. I could say I have the right to take my own life, well that would just be foolish. Jesus didn't take his life. He laid down his life. This was not an act of suicide. It was an act of grace. Because Jesus, in laying down his life, also knew he had the right, the authority, and the power to take it back up again, which he did three days later. As we approach Resurrection Sunday, you gotta understand this. This is important. I've I've done entire Easter sermons on this, this point. Jesus had the power and the authority in and of himself to raise himself from the dead. But you know what? The Father did it too. Jesus says, I lay it down, I take it up again. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 says, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. God brought up the great shepherd of the sheep. Well, Jesus said, I take it up. Jesus does. The Hebrew pastor says, God raised him. Well, in fact, the resurrection was a triune act involving Father, Son, and Spirit. Romans chapter eight, verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So now you know. If anybody asks you who raised Jesus from the dead, you say, oh, that's an easy one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because all three are mentioned in scripture as involved in the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus had the right and the authority as the God shepherd. Verse 19. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon, he's insane, why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? (laughs) Divisions and schisms, they're abounding, And again, this is what Jesus' first coming does. It divides either to enlightenment or to blindness. And there's always divide between those who can see and those who cannot. This divides out faith, enlightenment, 
eyesight, heart sight, if you will. It divides that out from the religious spirit. And what Jesus' first coming does to the world is it forces us to make a choice. One way or the other, where are we gonna fall? Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. So you might wanna mark this in your Bibles. We just jumped about three months. From verse 21 to 22, we, we just skipped about three months. Now John is keeping the narrative moving forward. The phrase, at that time, might confuse some. You might say, well wait, I thought, I thought we were at Sukkot. And now all of a sudden, at that time, it's the Feast of Dedication that took place in Jerusalem. At that time is an adverb in the Greek, and it, it is, the word is tote, and, and it literally means when. But it's, it's a chronological time stamp, another marker of John saying, okay, now we're on to the next thing. So we just jumped three months from the fall to the winter, Tishri in the fall, and the Feast of Sukkot in Jerusalem, and now suddenly it is the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. 25th of Kislev, if you want to be precise. Do you know what the Feast of Dedication is? Anyone? Hanukkah. Yeah, Feast of Lights, Feast of Dedication. It's Hanukkah, which, by the way, it's not a biblically mandated holiday. But Jesus kept it. So I think you're okay keeping Christmas. Just saying. 25th of Kislev, this is when the Jews under Mattathias first and then Jewish Maccabee fought back against that Greek madman and Antichrist archetype, Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, back in 164 BC, they, they drove him out and they reconsecrated the temple. Antiochus had come in and he spattered blood, pig, pig's blood soup all over the inside of the sanctuary and they cleansed it and they reconsecrated it, but in the process realized as they light the lamps, they relight the lampstand, put it in them, they go, oh no, we have a problem, oy vey, we don't have enough oil. All that we have is what's in the lamps. And it takes eight days to make consecrated oil for the lampstand. The lampstand's gonna go out, what do we do? And they began the process of consecrating the oil and they waited and those lamps that should only have burned a day each Burned for eight days. And so Jews keep Hanukkah. And I think it's a marvelous recognition of a miracle that took place there in the season between the, the last of the Hebrew prophets, John the Baptist, and Malachi before him. In that 400-year period, people say, God didn't do anything. Eh, I think he did. So they consecrated, and that's the 25th of Kislev, and that that is what's happening. That's why Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's there to celebrate Hanukkah. You know, he's having potato pancakes and he's enjoying himself with all, with all the rest, right? It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. A couple of quick things, let me throw this in. Hanukkah in first century Israel in Jerusalem was a time of intense Jewish nationalism. Because Hanukkah is a Jewish nationalistic holiday. That's when we drove out those Greeks. So it's a time of, yeah, yeah, it's a time where overthrow would be discussed and a looking for a Mashiach deliverer, someone like a Judas Maccabee to come and hammer the Romans. And so this would have been on people's minds as, as this is taking place. And I think that's part of why John tells us, hey, it was Feast of Dedication right now. 
But he also says that Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. That's important too because, well, he could be in the portico of Solomon because weather-wise, you don't want to be anywhere else out in the temple. It's just too cold. Some of you recently there know exactly what I'm talking about. Pouring down rain, freezing cold. We were out on the southern steps of the temple. I was teaching in Matthew 24, which I like to teach there on the southern steps. It's just, it's a great place, and that's where they came out. And, and you know, Jesus and the, and the disciples, and the disciples said, look, Lord, look at, look at these buildings, look at this temple. And he said, hey, not one stone's gonna be left on another. Well, that's Matthew 24. So they're coming down the southern steps. So when we go to Israel, we like to plant it there and do Matthew 24. Well, as we're walking around the southern end of the temple a week and a half ago, it was freezing, and it's just pouring rain. <sighs> you know, we're under this, this overlook, which I didn't tell you all at a time was actually originally a pagan temple, but we, we found solace there. <laughs> it's pouring rain. We come out from finally, finally the rain stops. To the steps, and we run over the southern steps. Sit down, everyone, sit down, open the Bible. And I'm sitting there teaching Matthew 24, and I'm watching this massive black cloud of rain and ice and you know sleet coming our way as I'm you know what I'm teaching like I've never I've never been so stressed teaching the Bible before in my life but uh, we got through about half of it and then we had to run back to the pagan overhang and you know do the rest here what is that so if it's the 25th of Kislev and 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 Jesus is in the portico of Solomon that makes sense because that would be a covered overhang and that would be a place where you're out of the wind and you're out of the rain in the temple but there may be something else. It's possible that what John is doing is connecting Jesus to where the early church met in the temple. Acts chapter five, verse 12. Acts chapter three, verse 11 also. But Acts, Acts five twelve says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So this is where the church met. And for those who say the church, by the way, side note, should only be house churches like they were in the first century, no. They met in homes daily and they met in Solomon's portico. They met at the temple at least every week. So it was in the temple in large fellowship and it was in homes in smaller fellowship. That, to me, that's a healthy church. Together as one and in each other's homes. And both, I think, are necessary to truly do what the Lord has called us to do as a church. Okay, enough on that. Verse 24, moving on. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I, I don't even know, how do you answer that? If you're Jesus. How many times have I told you this? But listen to the Jewish context. They're saying, if you are Messiah, tell us. But they didn't understand who Messiah was going to be. That's why they were having so much trouble with Jesus. All this, this implied deity and the receiving of worship from the blind man. And, and, and Are you Messiah? Are you an, an anointed man is what they're asking. Literally, by the way, verse 24, it is when they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? They literally say, how long do you lift up our soul? How long do you lift up our soul? That's their problem. It's, they're, they're thinking they're all in the soul. They're not thinking in the spirit. How long do you lift up our soul? We're trying to figure this out. We can't figure it out. It's all in their heads. 
Isaiah 26, verse three, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The soul, the mind that is stayed on the spirit of God is the mind that is at peace. But watch this. If Jesus had plainly at this point said, I am the Christ, guess what? At that point, he could have amassed an army of zealots. If he just said, I am the Christ, I am your Messiah, then a bunch would have followed him right there, probably protected him, and he never would have gone to the cross. And there never would have been Christianity, it just would have been Yeshuaites, Jewish Yeshuaites, just a sect of Jews who believe that Jesus is their Mashiach, their Messiah, and there would have been no problem But Jesus knew why he came, and he begins, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep, drawing back to the parable before, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I, note this, I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He is the God shepherd who then says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. If you're Messiah, tell us. I'll tell you better than that. I and the Father are one. The God shepherd. Old Jacob prophesied this, Genesis 49, 24, from the hands of the mighty one of Yaakov, for from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I and the Father are one. And little flock, as Jesus called us, listen to this. We are secure in the hand, in the grasp of the God shepherd. We are secure in the hand of son and the hand of father. In other words, we're in good hands. You are in good hands. When Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, I got you, you're secure, you're safe, you're provided for. I and the father are one. No one can snatch you out of the father's hand. I have hold of you. Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. So he's got us in his hands and his great arms support us. He keeps us in his hands. He supports us with his eternal arms because I and the Father are one, Jesus says, the God shepherd. And get this, the Greek syntax of that sentence, I and the Father are one, doesn't mean we're on the same page. This isn't the the same mission statement. I'm on, you know, I'm I'm with the Father on this. I'm alongside God. This is not like you or me saying, I'm with Jesus on this one. Hey, we are. It's not what he's saying. It literally means I and the Father are one. I am one of the same essence, the same nature. When he says, I and the Father are one, He's talking about, I am God. This is not just a Messiah statement, and the proof of it is the next verse. It was too much for the Jews. They heard, and they knew exactly what he was saying. 
Notice this, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why would they do that? They wouldn't if he just said, I am the Messiah. They would have been left going, hmm, well, then I gotta decide if I'm gonna follow you and believe you for that or not. But the fact that he said, I and the Father are one, they knew what he was saying. Context is everything. You know those who say there are all kinds of interpretations of Scripture? You know why that's not true? There are all kinds of interpretations if you rip things out of context. If you read it within the context that it's given, there's only one interpretation. And in this sense, the only interpretation of verse 30, we see in verse 31, he declares himself to be God. That's the only way you can take this because even the Jewish people who heard it in that moment, in context, knew exactly what he was saying and they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because Leviticus 24, 16 says, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall shall certainly stone him. And stoning was the death penalty for blasphemy. Jesus saying, I and the Father are one to Jewish thinkers and Jewish hearers in that moment was a declaration of divinity. They knew it, and it was too far, and that's the great divide even today between Christianity and Judaism as faiths. Jesus says in verse 32, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? (laughs) This is awesome. I tell you what, if, if I said something and y'all, we were outside and I, I said something and y'all started picking up rocks to stone me, I wouldn't ask that question. I'm just gonna tell you right now, I would be running for my life. I'm not sticking around to say, to see why do you want to throw a rock at me? I'm out, you know? Jesus, he's so cool. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one are you stoning me? I just wanna be clear on what you're killing me for. <laughs> And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, listen, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's it. That's what he said. It's what they heard. That's what he just declared. But listen, listen, they're wrong. They're wrong. This isn't a man making himself out to be God. This is God who made himself to be man. Philippians chapter two, verse seven, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the God who made himself to be man. And he just declared it and blew their minds. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law Quote, I said you are gods. Jesus says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Verse 35, by the way, is Jesus' own estimation of scripture. It's how he views the Bible. Listen to it again. The scripture cannot broken. That's how Jesus views the Bible. 
Scripture can't be broken. Scripture's solid. It's the word of God. It is absolutely solid. You can trust it. You can believe in it. Jesus did. That's his statement on the word. Jesus will quote the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, what I like to call the Older Testament, because I don't think of it as old and dusty. I think of it as absolutely necessary to understanding the New Testament and comprehending what God has done. He quotes from the Hebrew scriptures 64 times in the four gospels. Again and again, because, because the scripture cannot be broken. But maybe you read this and went, okay, whoa, hang on. We're coming to what I thought was the end of the teaching, and now I'm completely perplexed. Jesus said, listen again, has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Because I declared myself to be God, now you're, you're freaking out, but he said you are gods. What is he saying? Two times in Torah and one time in the Psalms, God called certain men gods. Now this is important theology to understand. There are three times, just three, but there are three times, in fact, in the Hebrew scriptures where God called certain people gods. And the word used is Elohim. Listen to this, Exodus chapter 21, verse five. If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, literally shall bring him to the gods. It's Elohim in the plural form. He shall bring him to the gods, and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Now that one is vague because that could be Elohim. He shall bring him to God as in Yahweh because Yahweh is Elohim. It could also bring, be he will bring him to the gods, meaning a certain group of men. Let me explain why. Exodus 22, verse nine. For every breach of trust whether it's for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, for any lost thing about which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the Elohim. He whom the Elohim condemns shall pay double for his neighbor. It's judges. God uses the phrase, Moses uses the phrase in Exodus twice, Elohim, to refer to judges of Israel. You guys all look at me like, what? Are you crazy, Rick? That's, I, listen, the reason is because they, do, they bore divine positional authority. They were judging on behalf of Elohim, who's God. And in those two cases, and there's one more that, I'll, that will, I think, close the case on the whole thing. In those two instances, he's talking about judges. Judges of Israel whose role is to act on Elohim with a capital E as their standard of judgment. So you're judging for me, you're like little Elohim, Elohim with a small E. We're not talking about Brigham Young's Mormonism. We're not talking about that all men can be gods and have their own cosmos and, and all the women, by the way, your part in Mormonism is that you just get to bear babies for the gods for all eternity. I don't know why any woman would want to be a Mormon, but that's just, you know, I don't understand these things. 
Jesus, what he's doing here, watch this. Turn, turn over to Psalm 82. I know the evening is getting long. We're almost done. Turn over to Psalm 82 and watch this. What Jesus is doing here, he's not just trying to trip them up and play word games. He's quoting the Hebrew scriptures, which in Hebrew say, I said you are God's. He's quoting a specific place. Exodus 21 and 22 that I just quoted to you are instances where it is likely that that word Elohim is talking about judges. Now, if if you wanna argue the point and say, no, no, Rick, I really think that's just talking about God, that's fine, I'm not gonna argue with you, but you can't argue on this one. Psalm 82, what Jesus is doing is he's raising the issue of sound judgment. He's so brilliant in this. Psalm 82, verse one God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Note this. God, at the very beginning of verse one, is Elohim. In the midst of the rulers, rulers is Elohim. Same word. But the verse itself makes a division. God, Elohim, plural, takes his stand, singular, in his own singular congregation. He judges in the midst of the Elohim. Now, there are entire books written about, oh, well, maybe it's other gods. He rules in the midst of the other gods, and there are little gods and running around, you know, the Greek gods, maybe, you know, Zeus and the guys, Thor, maybe Thor is a god. No, he rules in the midst of the judges. This is that use of that word Elohim. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is Elohim, capital E, talking to Elohim, little e, the judges who should be judging by the character and standard of God, but they're not. And so he says, how long will you judge unjustly? Vindicate the weak, verse three, and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are Elohim. And all of you are sons of of the most high. This is not Mormon theology. This is Hebrew theology. I said you are little Elohim. You're in the positional place of divining or or, or deciding sound judgment, of, of bringing justice. That's a God thing. All of you are sons of the most high. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. And so that psalm right there makes a very clear distinction between Elohim, who is God, and the ones he calls little Elohims, who are judges, judging by the standard of his righteousness. And what this psalm is, is an indictment of bad judgment by these Judges, and the word is Elohim. Are you with me on that? You understand what I'm saying? I hope you do, because Jesus quotes this psalm now back in John chapter 10, again, as an indictment of their misjudgment. They are misjudging him. He says, I and the Father are one. They say, no way, and they're picking up stones, and he starts quoting Psalm 82 to say, you are not judging by the standard of righteousness. You are not judging by the standard of God. They judged Jesus to be a blasphemer because they refused to enter in to the divine works that he had done as evidence. Read on. He says, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. 
Look at what I've done. As in just recently, the blind receiving sight. No one else has done that. That's a work of God. That's a creative work of God. But if I do them, he says, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And therefore, they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. And that same rejection, same thing remains among Jews and Gentiles today. It's the same dividing line. Is Jesus God or just a man? That's the question. And all who fail to see, and I'm talking anybody, Jew, Gentile, even those who purport to be or claim to be Christians, if you fail to see Jesus as God, it is spiritual blindness. You are not seeing clearly. Jesus declared himself to be the God shepherd. And speaking, by the way, of that dynamic of Jesus as God, God the Father, God the Son, listen to this. Here's another Hebrew prophetic word for you. Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, Mashiach, with the oil of joy above your fellows. Messiah is called God in that verse. In the Hebrew scriptures, it's already there. You don't even have to open the New Testament. I think you should, but you don't have to open the New Testament to discover that Messiah has always been declared to be, when he comes, God with us, Emmanuel. Verse 40 says, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. That is Bethany beyond Jordan. John chapter one, verse 28, where John was doing his baptizing, 25 miles east of Jerusalem. It's a place called Bet Abara, or, or in Hebrew also Ma'avarot. And Ma'avarot, that's where we do our baptizing when we go to Israel. That's the place. That's the place where the Israelites crossed the Jordan coming into the land. That's where Elijah crossed, parted the Jordan, and walked across with Elisha on dry ground before he was caught up in a fiery chariot. That's the place John the Baptist baptized. That's where Jesus took up baptizing and now Jesus goes back. He goes back over there. It's interesting because verse 40 indicates where Jesus is. This is at the time of Kislev. We're still, what, three months out from Passover. Jesus will not go into Jerusalem again until Passover. He primarily is gonna stay out here. Now he's gonna make a side trip to Bethany to visit Lazarus, you know, in chapter 11. Half of that visit's, visit's really dead, but we'll get there. <laughs> but he mostly stays out here at Bethany beyond Jordan, Ma'avarot. And you might ask, well, what's he doing? Is he hiding? Jesus in hiding because he knows what's about to happen? No, no, no. What's he doing? He's not retreating from the fight. He's resting up for it. It's just my opinion. But Jesus takes the apostles and goes out there and he stays outside of Jerusalem. He never goes back up to the Galilee until after the resurrection. But he stays out there just on the other side of the Jordan. He's baptizing people. And what's, what's amazing is that they keep coming to him. He's going out there to rest really in preparation for his final exam. 
the examination of the Passover lamb that will take place that week. And he's out there, and the sheep just keep coming out to the God shepherd. Verse 41, many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So I'll leave you with this question. Do you believe in the God shepherd? Let me make this really practical for you. Are you freaked out? Are you stressed out? Are you worried? Is life difficult? Are you uncertain? Are, are there troubles ahead? Are your seas stormy right now? Are things out of your control? Listen, things may be out of your control, but you are in the hands of the God shepherd. He has you. He has me. There is nothing, this, this blows the lid off of any other place I might try to find comfort or rest or peace. The God shepherd has me. God does, which means my eternity with him is secure. It means my life right now is secure. What am I worried about? Why do I panic? Why do I fear? Why do I fret? Why do I stress? Listen, look to the God shepherd. He's got you. And what you believe about God will have immediate impact on how you live your life in this world. Jesus, the God shepherd. Let's stand together. John, you can come on up. Just listen to this, and we'll end with this as John gets ready to lead our song. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that is a promise for right now. Right now, the good shepherd is your shepherd. Jesus, I pray for all the peace and the comfort and the rest and the joy that comes with knowing that we're shepherded. And not just by a good man, but by God who became man. Jesus, increase our faith to see you as our divine shepherd. As the one who eternally has the power to fulfill everything you ever said. Increase our faith. Help us trust you. And Father, relieve us from all the concerns of this immediate life. That we might enter into the abundance that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.